I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're looking into some of the ways we can tread more lightly on the oceans by finding alternatives to overfishing. We'll be hearing from the Marine Stewardship Council about what lies behind eco-labels for sustainably caught fish, and we'll find out how scientists are helping to make sure manta ray ecotourism benefits both mantas and people. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello. We'll also be finding out how fish sanctuaries have been working to help local communities in the Philippines make a sustainable living from their marine resources. And we'll be catching up with another marine expert and asking them to choose our Critter of the Month. They live part of their lives sitting in trees, just hanging out, um, part of their lives floating on the ocean. So you'll often see them skimming in these long lines just over the waves. Keep listening to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you have any questions, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Let's get things started with some of the latest underwater news from around the world. And first up, I've got news of a study that for the first time has shown that marine protected areas can benefit surrounding areas of the sea by supplying fish larvae that drift out and reseed areas over 100 miles away. And scientists have found this out using a brand new DNA fingerprinting technique similar to forensic technologies used in human crime cases. Well, larvae drifting out of MPAs is a really important plus side for them. But it's something that actually up until now we've really rather had to assume because there's been little direct evidence to show that it actually happens. Well, Mark Christie from Oregon State University led a team who studied a beautiful reef fish called a yellow tang. And these were in serious decline in Hawaii a decade ago because they were taken in huge numbers for the aquarium trade. And that was until nine MPAs were set up to help protect them. Well, these fish are actually perfect for studying how fish larvae disperse because once they settle down on a reef, they stay put, living within about a half mile home range radius. So if a juvenile ends up a long way from its parents, the only way it could have got there is by drifting as a tiny larvae, not by swimming when it was a bit older. Well, the researchers analysed the genetics of over a thousand juvenile and adult fish in Hawaii, and then using this new fingerprinting technique, they were able to match up offspring to their parents, uncovering that a few young fish ended up on a different reef about 114 miles from mum or dad, and where they ended up corresponded to a prevailing northward ocean current in the area. 
obviously this is just one species of fish and there'll be all sorts of different things going on when there's other species considered. But this sort of detailed information is vitally important for the creation of effective marine protected areas because it helps us to work out where we should put them really to maximise those connections between different sites. And it should also help encourage ocean users to support MPAs and to stick to the rules of not fishing inside them because the idea is that um, beyond those MPA boundaries, fisheries will also benefit. It's not just the fish inside the reserve. And as the authors write in their paper, which was in the journal PLOS One, it really goes to show the important linkages between different areas of the sea and that management in one area really can affect people and fish in other areas of the sea. So we're really just living in a great big interconnected world. Well, it's really good to know that MPAs can benefit not just the areas that they're in, but the wider fish populations as a whole. That's really good news. Well, I've actually got another piece of good news, and it's a very appropriate story for our theme this month. Some researchers publishing in Nature have described the factors that make for a successful and sustainable fishery. It's the first study to pull together data from papers and non-governmental organisations to come up with an idea of what's important in making certain fisheries more more successful than others. At the moment, around a third of all the world's fisheries are overexploited, but a huge number of people rely on fish as their main source of protein, particularly in the developing world. How to extract enough fish to make a fishery economically viable whilst at the same time not overexploiting it is a big challenge. Nicholas Gutierrez and his colleagues from the University of Washington in Seattle looked at 130 co-managed fisheries, which means that they're cooperatively managed by communities, managers and scientists spread around the world. They looked at what combinations of certain attributes made the fisheries successful or not. These attributes were things like if there was a strong social cohesion in the community managing the fishery, if there were protected areas nearby, what type of fishery it was, the strength of the leadership behind the management of the fishery, and so on. The attributes were then correlated with the success score of the fishery, which was calculated by looking at factors like catch abundance and social and economic impact of each fishery. What they found was that the most important attribute for the success of a fishery was strong management leadership, followed by the presence of catch quotas, then the level of community cohesion and having protected areas. Unsurprisingly, they also found that a fishery was more likely to be successful if it had eight or more of these positive attributes. So the study offers real hope for the sustainable future of fisheries, which with the growing human population is a very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of study is all very well to say, well, that's what's going on now. But the really important thing that we can use this for is to say, OK, well, what do we do in the future? How do we, you know, some of those things is a, a bit hard to achieve, perhaps, but we can, you know, really focus in on, you know, promoting leadership and things like that and, and, and encourage more fisheries to be sustainable. Well, precisely. I mean, they just, they found that some attributes to the fisheries were less important than others so particular ways of organizing them and the management strategies behind them were found to not really correlate with a successful fishery as much as the community cohesion which I suppose makes sense because if you're in a community that manages a particular fishery and you get most of your economic value from fishing there and as a community you're very cohesive you're more likely to do it sustainably and think about your neighbors and the positive way of doing it. Well, you can find out more about that story and our others from this month's show at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. 
This month on Naked Oceans, we're delving into ways we can reduce our impact on the ocean by finding alternatives to overfishing. And coming up, we'll be finding out how fish sanctuaries in the Philippines are helping to offer people a more sustainable way of using their local marine resources. But first, when it comes to reducing our impact on the oceans, consumers, you and me, can do our bit by choosing to buy fish that comes from a sustainable source. But an important part of that is knowing which fish are okay to eat and which aren't. The Marine Stewardship Council certifies sustainable seafood and their little blue stickers are becoming a more common sight on supermarket shelves and fish counters. We chatted to Maylin Nunn from the MSC to find out what lies behind the label. Well, the Marine Stewardship Council um, came to be about 10 years ago and it was put together by WWF and Unilever sort of as a partnership because there was a realisation that what was missing was for ocean conservation was a market-based tool, basically an incentive to reward fisheries that were operating sustainably and to create an incentive for those that weren't to kind of raise the bar. How do you kind of understand and almost define that, that sustainability? For the Marine Stewardship Council, we have a very objective science-based way of, of defining sustainability. So the MSC was set up as an environmental voluntary standard for sustainability. So the focus is on the environmental side of things. And there are three overarching principles to the standard. The first one focuses on the status of the stock itself. So um, the assessment teams need to make sure that the stock is, is healthy, the stock is doing well. The second principle is on ecosystems, so looking at habitats and interactions with bycatch species and things like that. So wider than the stock, also looking at the impacts on the ecosystem. And the third principle is about the legislative framework, so regulation, whether there's proper regulation in place and if it all fits together to support a sustainable fishery. Getting to kind of the nuts and bolts of how this actually works, if there's a fishery that wants to join in with the, the Marine Stewardship Council, how does it go about actually getting certification? We have various different departments within the MSC that focus on exactly that. So we have outreach staff that are based in different regions of the world that are sort of the main contact points for fisheries that are interested in the program. So they're there to have conversations with interested fisheries, teach them about what our standard is, what's required to meet it. Um, there's certification bodies which are independent from the MSC that actually carry out the assessments. And so a fishery, a fishery client would contact a certification body. We would Our outreach staff would say, this is what you, the first step you need to do. Um, and then probably undertake a pre-assessment. So that certification body would look at the fishery, sort of a first, um, almost like a scoping exercise to tell them, you're looking good. We think you'd probably pass under full assessment or you need to improve in, in these ways before you can have a chance of passing. And once they've done a pre-assessment and perhaps improved the fishery to whatever level they need to be at, then they go into full assessment and start the actual MSC fishery assessment. So you don't actually do those assessments yourself? Yes, exactly. And that's quite an important thing about the MSC, actually, is that it's a third-party independent certification standard. So the Marine Stewardship Council itself owns the standard, but the assessments are done by accredited certification bodies who then hire independent experts of fishery scientists to undertake the assessments. What sort of tools, what sort of scientific tools are they using in terms of trying to understand how much of an impact a fishery is having? If the assessment team is looking at how the stock is doing, uh, one of the first things I look at is, is a stock assessment, if there is one. In Europe, for example, there's a body called ICES, International Council for Exploration of the Sea, that 
um, has scientists that do stock assessments on European fish stocks using various methods, like they might do hydroacoustic surveys, which is basically sticking a big microphone in the ocean and trying to sound wave how many fish there are, essentially, um, and estimate what the population is. But in some fisheries, there are no stock assessments, and then it's harder for them to, to meet our, our fishery standard because the way it was initially set up, it's quite data-heavy because we require that a lot of things, evidence is provided for a lot of things like state of the stock, how much fish is caught, um, all sorts of things like that. But for some small-scale fisheries in developing countries, it's pretty much impossible for them to show that using regular methods. Maybe it's just a small fishery with, I don't know, three vessels catching, I don't know, 40 fish a day, and the fish have all, they've always caught 40 fish. They aren't expending more effort to try and catch that many fish. Fish are the same size, that kind of thing. So we've developed something called the risk-based framework that small-scale fisheries can use, which is um, basically a way of looking at what impact they have on the fish stock without using such such data-heavy protocols. So it's basically getting a group of stakeholders together to talk about what they've seen in the fishery over the past few years and try to assess a level of risk. And um, who pays for this certification? Presumably this isn't um, just a free system. You can't just join in and expect to kind of have all these services for free. Who actually pays for that? I'm really glad you asked that question, actually, because it's uh, a message that uh, I think is really important for the Marine Stewardship Council. So uh, the fishery being assessed pays for the assessment, but they pay the certification body to undertake the assessments, and the MSC does not receive any of that money. So the fishery client is paying the certification body for their services, basically. Presumably you have to keep quite close tabs on what's going on um, to make sure that they are maintaining that sustainability. How does that work? Yeah, so if a fishery passes and gets certified, that certificate is valid for five years. And every year, the fishery gets audited. The assessment team goes back to the fishery to check that they're still on track, that if there are any conditions on certification, so areas where um, they were operating sustainably but could improve to even better practice, and it's not possible for that fishery to be reassessed, which would happen at the end of the five-year certificate, if they have not met their conditions or if something has changed in the fishery, it could cause them to fail and lose certification. Fantastic. And how do you feel that the Marine Stewardship Council has changed the way that we fish the ocean? Yeah, this is something that we are looking into in more and more detail. And we do have some anecdotal stories to say things are really improved. Like, for example, in the South African Hague fishery, since they've been certified, their numbers of albatross bycatch have really, really decreased. So things like that have happened. The MSC is really interested in seeing sort of the broader picture. Um, what impact are we having on the oceans and marine sustainability generally? So we're undertaking development of a monitoring and evaluation program to really put in place a strategy, um, so create impact indicators, so things that we monitor from year to year to track changes in, in the oceans and, and try and say what the MSC has contributed to make those changes. Is it realistic to say that we can we can achieve this for the whole oceans and, and still have enough fish for everyone to eat? Or is this kind of a luxury for people who can afford to pay a bit more for their fish? The MSC's vision is to create sustainable seafood for the next generation and to have oceans that are teeming with life. So we're not looking to certify every fishery in the sea, but the goal is to reward those fisheries that are operating sustainably with the eco-label, and they can use that to market their product and perhaps get a price premium. And hopefully that is an incentive for other fisheries to, to raise the bar to operate that level as well. I mean, I don't think that it's possible for all the fisheries to get certified, but I think, and we've certainly seen in the past few years, an increasing number of fisheries come forward. Whether or not that trend of increase is possible to continue the way it has, I don't know. But I think that the eco-label is still a valuable tool to influence the market that way. 
That was Maylin Nunn, Senior Fisheries Certification Manager from the Marine Stewardship Council, telling us about some of the ins and outs of eco-labelling for sustainable seafood. It's really good to be able to have that option because I think there is a lot of, you know, consumer power with consumer pressure. If you make the choice to buy sustainable fish over non-sustainable fish, then hopefully that will be able to make a big difference in the future. Now, when it comes to working out alternatives to overfishing in the oceans, ecotourism is often considered to be the perfect win-win solution, creating an incentive to protect marine life while at the same time generating income. We caught up with Andrea Marshall from the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Megafauna in Mozambique to find out how those elegant cousins of sharks, the enormous manta rays, are threatened by an emerging fishery for their gills to make into Chinese medicines and whether ecotourism offers a viable alternative. Manta rays are caught uh, sort of across the globe, but when people imagine a manta ray fishery, sometimes they don't quite understand um, sort of the different types of fisheries that occur um, obviously, there are subsistence or artisanal fisheries that occur, you know, throughout their distribution where indigenous populations have been targeting them for food for many, many years. Um, and that's not something that we're as worried about because those are uh, sort of historical, traditional fisheries. And, and a lot of times they catch num- uh, animals in small small numbers. And then, obviously, you get bycatch fisheries, which are um, also very, it's a very contentious issue because obviously the world needs to eat and there's fisheries um, for, for, for uh, food that's caught around the globe and unfortunately people are not catching them sometimes in a sustainable way and a lot of other animals die as bycatch and for some reason manta rays seem to get caught up in nets when people are targeting things like tuna or whatnot. People are uh, not trying to catch the mantas and, and they, they're actually quite aware that you shouldn't be targeting mantas at all but there's not anything that they feel that they can do about it. So a lot of these traditional uh, fisheries in places like Indonesia or places like, you know, Taiwan or, or, or even in India, they're catching large, large amounts of these mantas and mobulas in these nets, um, which is, you know, disastrous to, to any of those populations. Clearly, the thing that we're most concerned with is um, fish, like target fisheries, um, places where people actually are targeting manta rays specifically um, because they are trying to extract the gill rakers uh, from the animals to uh, sell uh, to the Chinese medicinal trade market. And um, that is, I think, the most sort of abominable use of mantas at the, at the present time, which is, you know, they're not using them for food or anything. They're actually targeting them for um, medicinal products that actually don't work. Um, and I actually feel that that's uh, probably where we need to target most of our energy at the moment is trying to stop those fisheries. And where in the world are mantas being targeted for their gills? The target fisheries are springing up, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia. Um, some of the worst I've ever seen are in places like Indonesia, um, where you know we've seen as many as 500 mantas a year being taken in some of the fisheries in, in places like Lombok. But we're also seeing that it's starting to spread to areas like uh, India and Sri Lanka, Um, you know, and even across to places like Africa, um, where local fishermen are now being told that they they can get large sums of money for for taking these animals. I guess a lot of conservationists feel that we should really be talking about providing alternatives for people who would like to make money from, say, fishing species like manta rays. And ecotourism is something that's often put forward as that possible alternative. Do you think we can make manta tourism work? This is probably one of the closest issues to my own heart because, you know, I'm, I, I do, you know, the majority of my research is done in Mozambique, which is a coastline um, that is very 
um, still undiscovered, still very pristine. So in the time, you know, the, almost the decade that I've been working in Mozambique, I've actually started to see uh, tourism on the rise in, in, in the area. And um, fundamentally, tourism can be a very positive influence, especially when trying to um, make governments understand the value of animals and also see an alternative um, to fishing. So if you can if you can show them that that by uh, sustainably using you know resources like ocean uh, their ocean resources to uh, promote tourism in a sustainable way, um, then you can really sort of provoke change. However, the actual tourism itself needs to also be done slowly and sustainably in a way that doesn't change the animal behavior. And even in a place like Mozambique where tourism is just budding, we're actually starting to see a shift in in animal behavior already. Um, and I know that many other people around the world, specifically with manta rays, have actually seen a negative response from from too much tourism, you know, tourism that increases too quickly, um, and lots of human traffic on the reefs that's actually uh, changing the behavior of the mantas. So I am definitely encouraging people that want to promote tourism in their area for mantas as an alternative for fishing to develop codes of conduct to, you know, make sure that people are, are diving responsibly and actually be very uh, conscious of slow growth, you know, not expanding too quickly, um, not having too much human traffic, and actually using science, using biologists as a way to investigate how you can make it sustainable. Like one of the things that we've noticed in Mozambique is that um, people are actually diving with mantas at cleaning stations, and cleaning stations appear to be very critical habitats for mantas, but mantas only use them during the daytime hours. In fact, they seem to use them only from 7 o'clock in the morning till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Those are the exact same hours that dive are actually wanting to go on dives. So actually, if, um, if you have divers constantly on the reef during those hours, mantas are getting no reprieve, no private time on the cleaning stations at all. So it's been a suggestion of, of mine in Mozambique that if we're going to continue diving at these critical habitats with mantas, that they do them for a few hours in the morning and then make sure for the rest of the day there are, there's no diving allowed on the reef so that the, man, the mantas are getting a little bit of sort of reprieve from human traffic. So I definitely think it's important to work with scientists to actually exact, examine the, the behavior of the, the animals so that you can, you can modify um, sort of the diver behavior to, to, to limit the impact. So it's really, really important for everyone to work together, and that's something that you don't often see around the world. Sometimes you get the tourism operations working against scientists because they feel that they have uh, dissimilar objectives, but they actually have similar objectives, which is to you know, protect the animals and make sure it's a sustainable industry. Well, clearly encountering a manta ray in the wild is an unforgettable experience. I think I'd be a bit terrified by it, actually, and they're so huge. But it's worrying to think that ecotourism sometimes isn't as harmless to wildlife as we might imagine, although it has to be a better option than killing manta rays for their gills. That was Andrea Marshall from the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Megafauna giving us the lowdown on manta ray ecotourism. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry. And we've been talking about ecotourism and eco-labelling as two alternatives to overfishing. And another way to help support local livelihoods without stripping the oceans bare is to create marine protected areas, or MPAs. Well, we've had an introduction to MPAs on Naked Oceans a few episodes ago, and this month we chatted to Jan von Buchover to find out how the folk at Coral Key Conservation are working with local communities in the Philippines to help set up a series of fish sanctuaries. Southern Leyte is found in the central Visayas of the Philippines, and it's an area that's renowned actually for the extremely high biodiversity, both on the, the land, but particularly in the sea. 
the coral reefs there are known to harbor a really vast amount of different species. Um, we had actually had a coral scientist visit our area by the name of Doug Fenner. And on one of his dives that he, he did near our project site, he actually found more hard coral species there than he had anywhere else in the world in a single dive. So that was an incredible result. And we, we realized this was a truly unique area. Now, Southern Leyte is not as populated as some of the other provinces. However, the people that live there depend mainly on fisheries or rice or copra, which is coconut farming, for their livelihoods. And as a result, um, a lot of pressure is put onto the reefs there. Most of the fisheries are very small-scale little boats that go out and um, they catch things like parrotfish and groupers and pretty much anything that they can get. Um, and this has been going on for you know several hundred years now. Um, but even in Southern Leyte, the population is, is increasing quite rapidly. So there is a tremendous amount of pressure on the reefs and a lot of the reefs, unfortunately, have been overfished. And so I suppose that's where the Coral Key conservation comes in. Um, what, what is the project that you've been involved in in order to help preserve this ecosystem? Well, we were initially invited there. Coral Key was invited by the provincial governor at the time. It was quite a, a chance meeting with our CEO and founder, Pete Rains, who happened to be sitting on an airline and happened to be sitting next to the daughter of the provincial governor. And um, that's how the ball got rolling. We, we were invited there back in 2002, since then, our, our goals and aims have been expanded and, and kind of shifted somewhat towards a lot more community-related work, um, and that includes engaging communities, providing them with workshops where we educate them more about the management possibilities that they have in order to, to help protect their reefs, but also to sustain their fisheries more effectively. And one of those means is to set up what we call community-based marine protected area. In the Philippines, they're often called fish sanctuaries. And what they are is they're basically a, a small area of, a, of, of the reef that is set apart, and within that area, no fishing whatsoever is allowed. Um, there's some limited diving allowed inside for tourists, but other than that, the area is fully protected, and it's quite a small area. And in the Philippines, the way it works is every province is divided up into municipalities, and within each municipality, we have what we call barangays. And each barangay, you can compare it somewhat to a, a parish. So it's a very um, a local level um, political unit of, of governance. And so every barangay typically has you know, several thousand people that, that, that live within it and have a particular coastline. And that coastline is, is completely there. So they have ownership of their own reefs, which is quite a unique system in the world. And the way we've managed to, to allow it to not only help enhance fisheries, we've, we've, uh, we've also worked closely with the tourism sector. So there's several, initially back in 2005, there's only one or two dive shops. Nowadays, there is at least, I think there's five local dive resorts now. And if divers wish to dive within one of those fish sanctuaries, they pay a small fee, and it's usually about a dollar or so, not very much at all. But that money all goes back into the barangay. So... The, the community sees financial benefits of establishing a, a fish sanctuary, which is great. But more importantly, what we're trying to establish is a situation where fish within the sanctuary are allowed to grow and actually reproduce. And after several years, fish start to leave the sanctuary, and that's where they can get caught by the fishermen. So it, it protects the fish within the sanctuary, but in addition to that, it also creates what's known as a spillover effect. So 
fish actually leave the sanctuary when they're at a, a size and an age where it's more productive for fishermen to catch them. And do you think sort of community-led projects like this, where you really get the community involved, it's their area, and they get a financial benefit from it, do you think this is something that would be beneficial to roll out in other areas, not just in the Philippines, but throughout other areas in the world as well? Absolutely. I I mean, I honestly believe that it's the only way to really um, have successful management initiatives. I don't see it working any other way. At the end of the day, it's the people that, that live there that are the natural custodians of their reefs or forests or whatever it may be. Eventually, you're going to run into the situation where those people are going to be, well, they're going to be very upset by the fact that you've basically restricted them from doing what they've been doing for, you know, several decades, if not hundreds of years. So it's really, really crucial that you look for means of allowing them to continue what they're doing at some level while also preserving those areas. And it's for their own benefit. So at the end of the day, if you can convince them that what you're doing is not only going to benefit the environment, but it's also going to directly help them, then I think you've got a, a winning formula. And finally, what are your hopes for the future for this particular project? Well, what, what we'd really like to see is a continuation, continuation of the establishment of, of these marine protected areas. There's obviously a lot, a lot of other issues, which I haven't really mentioned. There's, there's a lot of, for example, upland deforestation. So we get a lot of sedimentation, a lot of mud that gets washed onto the reefs and smothers the reefs, and that's been a big problem, in addition to pollution and, and other local issues like that. So what we're doing is trying to expand the project to also include a forest component. So, again, working with local communities, but this time around up in the rainforest and, and working with them to help protect the rainforest there in a similar means to what we've been trying to do with, with the coral reefs, and we've managed to do quite successfully. That, of course, will require a lot more resources, and that's that's something that we're working on. And I think as far as Coral Key is concerned, that's really key that we start taking on a more holistic, what we call a, a reef-to-ridge approach, a ridge-to-reef approach, so that you're not only protecting the reefs, but you're also protecting the, the, the upland forests because they, they certainly go hand in hand. And if you, you need to address both of those if you want to really um, have an effective conservation management scheme. Jan von Buck over there from Coral Key Conservation telling us about their project in the Philippines that's helping to set up fish sanctuaries and educate locals about the importance of conserving their marine neighbours. Well, I guess that really links back to your news story, Sarah, doesn't it? That we you know this the importance of the local scale and, and getting people involved and, and caring about their communities and their use of marine resources. And that's when you know we really can work towards sustainable fisheries, which is good for people and good for the oceans as well. Well, exactly. And I mean, like Jan was saying, it it is a little bit different in the Philippines because of the presence of the barangays, the sort of local parishes, and they own their own particular area of coastline. So it is very much a kind of an ownership of their particular area. So they do feel very connected to it, which obviously makes it very easy to go in there and educate people and say, you know, this area, it's yours, preserve it, it's important. And obviously, with the benefits of the the diving and the ecotourism going on there, as well as helping to maintain local fisheries. It's, it's, all, it's all going quite well out there, so it's, it's a good sign. Well, that's almost all we've got time for for this episode of Naked Oceans. But before we go, let's find out what we've got for our Critter of the Month. My name is John Bruno. I'm a marine ecologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
And if I were to be a marine animal, I would be a brown pelican. Brown pelicans live in North and South America along the coast. They are seabirds. They eat fish almost exclusively. And of the eight species of pelicans, they're the only ones that dive into the water to catch their fish. So they live part of their lives sitting in trees, just hanging out, um, part of their lives floating on the ocean. They migrate um, quite far um, seasonally, so you'll often see them skimming in these long lines just over the waves. And, of course, they get to go into the ocean as well. So they'll dive in, go down pretty deep, a couple of meters, sometimes maybe a little more than, than that, catch a fish, bring it up to the surface, and gulp it down. For a long time in North America, they were threatened by DDT, which made their eggshells too thin for the chicks to survive, but that problem's largely been solved. So their populations are recovering, doing really well. Um, of course, the Gulf Coast oil spill is, is causing them lots of problems, at least locally. And one of the most really horrific images from that, um, that tragedy is seeing pictures of oil pelicans on the beach. John Bruno there from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, introducing us to the brown pelicans. And you can check out lots more marine critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, time's up for this month's Naked Oceans. A huge thank you to Malian Nunn, Jan von Bukova, Andrea Marshall and John Bruno. Tune in next time for more news, chat and hot issues from the oceans. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.